please have a seat. Friends, as many of you probably know, I've been sick with COVID this week. And although I am able to be out of isolation, I do need to wear a mask when I'm with people. So this will perhaps shorten my words this morning. This being our annual meeting Sunday, I do want to lift up some themes and questions from our gospel that may speak especially to congregational life, as well as say just a few words about the state of the church, as I always do on this day. Please wave if you can't hear me, and I will try to speak clearly. And please join us for the annual meeting after the service and take a look at all the accounts of the good work done at Ascension this year that you can find in the annual report booklet. Every Epiphany season, after the stories of the baptism of Jesus and the call of the first disciples, we hear about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Every Gospel writer tells us something different. For each one, it's a microcosm of the good news as they understand it. Matthew starts with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is a wisdom teacher for him, the new Moses, sharing the profoundly countercultural message of the Beatitudes. Luke shows us Jesus preaching in the synagogue in his hometown, proclaiming good news to the poor and liberation to the oppressed in such a way that it stirs up his hometown folks. But in Mark, although Jesus is teaching, the emphasis is not on what, it's on how. And then on what is done, wait for Mark's favorite word immediately afterwards. With his newly called disciples, Jesus tells us, Mark tells us, Jesus comes to Capernaum on the Sabbath and strides into the synagogue to preach and teach. He generates amazement, attention, and controversy right away. He teaches as one with authority and not like the scribes, the people mutter to each other. So this word, authority, In this context, it does not mean being put in charge of something by someone higher up, nor having specialized knowledge or training. In Greek, it is exousia, literally, out of being, from being. The people are saying that Jesus is teaching from his essence, from some deep place within himself, his bones, his guts. They contrast this with the scribes, the keepers and interpreters of sacred texts, laws, and obligation. Now, I am a fan of sacred texts, both biblical and otherwise, but there are surely times when we can't rely on the wisdom of ages, the wisdom of others, not tradition nor hearsay. There's something, well, immediate here, something exciting and raw, wilderness-forged and new, something authentic, which is a word that shares its root with authority. 
What makes something authentic, genuine all the way down? How do you experience that kind of authentic authority? Is it its integrity, the wholeheartedness? Is it a certain kind of lived knowledge, willingness to keep learning, engaging, asking questions about what you think you know? Is it being willing to take a risk, to tell the truth, to live the truth, especially when it's uncomfortable? One of our colleagues, Elizabeth Caton, writes about witnessing what she calls the authority of compassion in a mentor of hers who, after a homeless guest of the soup kitchen at his parish had a violent seizure, knelt by the man and tenderly took his head in his lap, stroking his hair and whispering gently to soothe him as he recovered. Such kindness does speak of the integrity of faith and of being. And similarly, when I know that someone loves me, really loves me, has my best interest firmly and truly at heart, I will trust their authority to speak hard or maybe unexpected truths to me. Commitment and compassion are part of genuine authority. So I imagine any or all of that might have been swirling in the crowd as the at the synagogue as they were talking that day. And then they see authority in action. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Just then, there he was, in the synagogue on the Sabbath, in the middle of sacred space and time. The demonic appears. Happens like that sometimes, doesn't it? In a spiritual setting, certain kinds of evil are harbored and then exposed from self-righteousness to abuse of trust to regression into some kind of archaic primitive state, the murky underbelly of our piety and even our faith. It arises. What have these stories of demons to do with us? It's easy to dismiss the first century worldview and its way of personifying evil and speaking of possession. Sometimes we talk about our demons, meaning the things we intractably struggle with. In those cases, it may be good to approach them like the Zen masters who say to invite them in for tea, not make a home for them, but get to know what that energy wants, what is so persistent and needs attention. Rumi says, meet them at the door laughing, and laughter is often a good strategy. But we do have experiences with evil in the way the baptismal covenant speaks of it, as forces that corrupt, degrade, and destroy the creatures of God, energies and forces that may be whispering in our own lives or may be shouting in the larger lives of communities and the world that stand against goodness and offer us no good thing, 
alien energies and energies of alienation, hatred, contempt, disinterest, racism, sexism, homophobia, rampant consumerism, violence and war and greed, and the temptation to despair and do nothing, addiction and apathy. We are not to identify them with individuals or groups of humans, but rather to understand them as principalities and powers, as Paul says. And we are called to renounce them in our baptismal covenant and to renew that choice continually as part of our lives of faith. But most important, in that renunciation, we also promise to trust and follow Jesus. And Mark would doubtless emphasize that we follow Jesus into the fray of a world that struggles, a world in need of liberating on a new and life-giving way. The man with the unclean spirit cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? It's not clear if us means the demons are legion here as elsewhere, or if the reference is to the occupier and the host, or if one just kind of leads to the next. What is clear is that at this point, only the demon knows who Jesus is and calls him by name, perhaps in an attempt to gain control, because in the Bible, naming something often helps you control it. Jesus shuts them down and calls them out of the man. This is amazing authority indeed, this authority over evil. And Mark wants us to understand that Jesus has come to free the world from the grip of these demonic, destructive, degrading, corrupting, violent forces to bring wholeness and liberation on a personal and communal, political and cosmic level. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? In context, the question reflects the demon's fear that the jig is up. Their power is coming to an end. But it's also a question for us with quite different implications. What does Jesus have to do with our lives, individually and as a community? How does the authority of Jesus touch us? Where do we experience a need for healing and liberation? And where do we see that need in our neighborhood and in the world? And what do we have to say and do about it? That leads to a similar question asked of one another. What have you to do with me? We might also ask it of others, broken ones, scary ones, curious ones, strangers, the non-human creatures with whom we share the world the very old and the very young, those near and far, far away, the ones we have been taught are our enemies and our best beloveds. Poet Vivian Sansour writes about the prevailing lie 
that we need have nothing to do with those undesirable others. She says, we are the land, we are the sea, we are the birds. We are not separate, and the idea that we are separate is the essential reason why we are so separate and in this pain. What have you to do with me, with us? It's not always clear what is ours to do in a world full of so much pain, so many shiny objects, and also such heart-opening possibilities. It is always ours to pray, to discern, to love our neighbor, and to seek justice and peace as best we can in what is given us. Always we have the truth of our connection to God and to one another, and the authority of integrity and compassion. I'd like to shift gears now for a moment to give thanks for the ministries of the Church of the Ascension, all the ways, by God's grace, that we do have to do with one another, and, yes, with Jesus. I am so thankful for my clergy colleagues who have, with whom ministry is shared and serendipitously seems to grow and become more than any one of us could do alone. This year we've been joined by Larissa as she's moved into her transitional diaconate and by Cindy, who is a candidate for the diaconate in our diocese. I'm grateful for Dennis and our glorious choir and the blessing of hearing them week after week for our staff, who often are behind the scenes keeping things running. Andrew, our parish administrator, Kelly, our business manager, Sajia, the bookkeeper, and of course, our sextants. You've heard a lot about our building this year and the essential work done by the Buildings and Grounds Committee in helping us restore our tower. Huge thanks to Steve Hubbard for his leadership and his constant good cheer in doing that work, as well as to all the members of the committee. We have a safety committee that attends to how we can be in the building well. It's chaired by Madonna Stack Barker, and so many others work on it too. John Grimes and Mary Guyard keep our finances moving. They're very complex, and they, as you probably heard last week, explain them with grace and transparency and also challenge us to do more and better. Last year at the annual meeting, one of the priorities was thinking about how we might work to grow income in our church using our spaces. Gail Lynch and Michael Sarabian have really taken that on in the past year, and although they have not yet yielded enormous results, they've laid essential groundwork, and I am so grateful to them for all of what they've done. Of course, our worship is what keeps us going and connected and praising God and taking the resources that we need out into the world week in and week out, and it's led by laypeople, acolytes and lectors, ushers, and the altar guild, 
not only at this service, but at 9 a.m. and on Wednesday nights and all throughout the year. There are those of you who sit at the door to welcome folks who come every day of the week. There are our gardeners who will have quite a lot to do once the scaffolding finally comes down and have helped try to keep our plants at least alive under difficult circumstances. We offer hospitality every Sunday morning. Matt Vermidal and David Kolker take that on, and many of you help from time to time, and we could use more, but we are so grateful for what you do. And then there are just the event makers and participants, the people who lunch and people who host and people who organize and invite and dream up new things. This too, a year ago, was one of the things we flagged as so important to rekindle after our long COVID time of being shut down. And it is so much more robust than it was. And I am grateful. Of course, I am grateful to and for our wardens, Isabel Spencer and David Kolker, both of them so devoted and so skillful in their love and leadership at Ascension, particularly in this year when we've had so many projects going on and when both of the full-time clergy, Ed and I, were away for part of the year on sabbatical. They have taken on a very particular level of leadership and responsibility. I'm thankful that our team will continue for yet a little while, and I look forward to continuing to work with you. And also to the vestry, all of the vestry, but especially the vestry members who are retiring at the end of this term, which is to say at this annual meeting, Rachel Sedor and Vin Knight and John Thompson. Gail Lynch is re-upping for another term for which we're glad. But these people have given an enormous amount, only some of which others see, and their energy and gifts and joy and ascension is part of what helps us all keep going. And I'm looking forward to seeing what they'll do next, every one of them. Finally, all of you, the people of Ascension, in person and online, thank you, those online, for your prayers, your laughter and tears, your labor and your love. Thank you for all that you do to make this community know that we belong together and express Christ's love in the world. <clears throat> and so I will leave you with these questions. What is your particular way of telling the gospel story? Maybe like Matthew or Luke or Mark or something completely different. What is ours as a parish? Where do you find your own authority and authenticity and how do you experience the authority of compassion in your life? How will you nurture our belonging to each other at Ascension? and our care for the world around us in the coming year. It's an honor to journey with you as your rector, and I look forward to exploring and serving together in the days to come. Amen.